the last several weeks, we've been in Romans chapter 7 and uh, have really kind of looked at a couple of different things. The first six verses introduced us to the tension that we have in life between spirit and flesh, right? This kind of conflict and this war that exists within those two things. Uh, last week, we talked in particular about the, the utterly sinful nature of sin itself, right? I mean, those, that's one of the things that we've also discussed was just how terrible sin really is and, and how we have to take it seriously. So we leaned into uh, the reality that this is like a war-torn soul. We even kind of uh, leaned into that idea and that imagery of, of war uh, so that we could tra- capture and try to, to lean into that idea of confession and repentance. And so we've been walking through chapter 7. Today's our last week uh, of chapter 7, and then we're going to use it to kind of springboard into our series on doubt, which will take us through the entire month of October. I'll mention a little bit more about that later, hopefully. But but today, I want, uh, since we last week had more of a serious time of confession and repentance, I hope that today captures a spirit that is absolutely uplifting and allows us to lean into the victory that we have in Jesus, the victory that we find um, in, in this struggle between flesh and spirit. But, but I want to make sure that we have the right frame of mind when I say that, that this is much deeper than uh, the sort of uh, cheap thrill of victory that we have when, when a sports team that we cheer for wins or when we have an accomplishment at school or when we win a, a board game at home with the family. Like th- Those are fun experiences of victory, but this is a true sense of victory that comes at the greatest cost. And, and so I want us to really continue to lean into that. And in particular, I, I want to keep riding on that imagery of war because that's a lot of the language that Paul uses and that we see in Romans chapter 7. And, and so we, we referenced that a little bit last week, and we talked about the before and after photos from uh, Ukraine and just kind of the devastation that war can bring, but that restoration was possible. Restoration was obviously something that you could still expect and look towards, and that that was something we, we also provided an image of by looking at some photos from World War II. And, and so I want to kind of piggyback off of that illustration and that image and talk again about just uh, some of the sacrifice, some of the, the cost, what, what people endure to secure the victory in war, right? And the idea of somebody going on your behalf to secure that victory and just how uh, remarkable that really is. And, and I'm sure that in the pages of history, there's no shortage of stories of heroism and survival that's really compelling. There was one in particular that I found. It was the first one that I, that I came across this week when thinking along these lines that really spoke to me that I want to share with you uh, this morning. And again, it comes from World War II. And uh, I found this featured article in the Smith- Smithsonian Magazine that was written about three years ago in honor of the 75th uh, anniversary of, of D-Day in particular. And as I was reading through this article, a couple statistics that I think are worth mentioning here at the beginning. Uh, I think it said that around 3% of the 16 million Americans that fought in World War II, only about 3% of those Americans are still alive uh, with us today. And when you think about those that served in the fiercest uh, levels of combat, uh, the statistics are even more sobering. I think they, they mentioned of the 427 Medal of Honor winners, only three at the time um, were still alive back in, in 2019. I tried to do some follow-up research on that, and I believe today there's only one Medal of Honor uh, uh, recipient that's still alive today. And, and so what that means is that we're entering into kind of a new season for ourselves and for our country where the stories of this sort of sacrifice and heroism that we saw in World War II are transitioning out of testimonials where you can sit down with people and they can tell you and share with you what it was like 
to truly just memories, uh, memories of their legacy and, and a whole generation um, of the past in many respects. And, and I believe, obviously, as Americans, it's important for us to know these memories and cherish them and treasure them and understand them. But I also point to them because as believers, I think they serve as powerful examples of, of somebody that has been willing to go and secure a victory on our behalf in, in how difficult that really is to do in the context of war, right? In that sort of hostility, that sort of um, fear that you have to face. And so there was one particular individual whose name was Ray Lambert, who is the featured part of this article. And, and I'm going to read to you just an excerpt from this article uh, about Ray from the Smithsonian Magazine. This was when Ray was 23 years old. He was a part of the D-Day invasion, which just as a quick reminder, included 160,000 men, 5,000 vessels, and 11,000 aircraft, right? It was years of planning and mobilization uh, to get to this moment and get to this point. Uh, Ray was a part of the uh, 16th Infantry Regiment of the Army Storied 1st Division. And uh, he was 98 years old in, in 2019 when this article was written. I believe he has since passed. Uh, but he gave this interview, um, and this is a lot of his story. His, his unit was on the front line of the D-Day invasion. Okay, so let me, let me read a little bit of this article. It says, In the early dawn of June 6, 1944, Lambert's medical unit landed with the first assault wave at Omaha Beach, where enemy troops were especially well-armed, well-fortified, and well-prepared. Drenched, <clears throat> weary, and seasick, from the nighttime channel crossing and rough seas, the GIs faced daunting odds. Pre-dawn aerial bombardments had landed uselessly far from their targets. Naval gunfire support had ended. Amphibious tanks were sinking before they reached land. Many of the landing craft were swamped by high waves, drowning most of their men. Soldiers charged forward in chest-deep waters, weighed down by as much as 90 pounds of ammunition and equipment. As they came ashore, they faced withering machine gun artillery and mortar fire. So if you capture that for a moment, put yourself into the story. Drenched, weary, and seasick because of a nighttime uh, journey across the English Channel, Right, and, and when you arrive, you realize that you're encountering an enemy that is well-fortified, well-equipped, well-prepared, that the aerial bombardment had missed a lot of the targets, uh, the, the naval gunfire support had stopped, and the amphibious tanks were sinking. And, and that's what you're coming up to, and you're 23, 23 years old. In the opening minutes of battle, by one estimate, 90% of the frontline GIs in some companies were killed or wounded. 90% of the frontline GIs in some companies were killed or wounded. Within hours, casualties mounted into the thousands. Lambert was wounded twice that morning, but was able to save well more than a dozen lives thanks to his bravery, skill, and presence of mind. Impelled by instinct, training, and a profound sense of responsibility for his men, he rescued many from drowning, bandaged many others, shielded wounded men behind the nearest steel barrier or lifeless body, and administered morphine shots, including one for himself to mask the pain of his own wounds. Lambert's heroics only ended when a landing craft ramp weighing hundreds of pounds crashed down on him as he attempted to help a wounded soldier emerge from the surf. Unconscious, his back broken, 
Lambert was tended to by medics and soon found himself on a vessel heading back to England. But his ordeal was far from over. When I came out of the army, I weighed 130 pounds, Lambert says. I'd been in the hospital for almost a year after D-Day in England and then back in the States before I was able to walk and really get around. So not only does he endure that sort of an invasion, uh, but it actually knocks him unconscious, he breaks his back, and he has to recover in a hospital in England for a year before he's back home and can even begin to walk. So that's the cost of sacrifice. That's what it looks like to go into war, to go into battle. He's visited Normandy many times. He was returning for the 75th anniversary to take part in some of the ceremonies, visit the war museums, pay his respects to the 9,380 men buried in the American military cemetery on the high bluff overlooking the hallowed beach. In his book, Every Man a Hero, which was co-authored by writer Jim DeFelice, Lambert writes about this hallowed beach. The tranquil seaside scene of today's Normandy coastlines is very different from the one etched in Lambert's soul. He especially remembers the sound of combat, a furious cacophony unlike anything in civilian life. This is a quote. He says, the noise of war does more than deafen you. It's worse than shock, more physical than something thumping against your chest. It pounds your bones, rumbling through your organs, counterbeating your heart. Your skull vibrates. You feel the noise as if it's inside of you, a demonic parasite pushing at every inch of skin to get out. Lambert brought home those memories which still rear up some nights, yet somehow he survived and came home to raise a family, drive as a businessman and inventor, and contribute to the life of his community. There was part of the article where they talked about his history, his past, and even the aspect as to why he decided to help write this book and co-author it, because so many veterans in particular don't feel compelled to do that. They, it's hard for them to share their own stories knowing what so many other men had to go through. Um, and didn't survive, but he, he ultimately says that I got to thinking very seriously about the fact that many of my men were killed. I'm thinking about all my buddies that couldn't tell their stories, and that's ultimately what led him to, to help write this book. He says, the responsibility you felt for those men on Omaha Beach 75 years ago has never left, and it never will. Right, so that's, that's the sort of battle and war that gives us a very sobering reminder of what sacrifice is required to secure victory, right? So when we talk about the joy of victory today, we're talking about something profoundly deep that comes at tremendous cost, tremendous sacrifice. And, and the, the feeling that you get when you know that someone is going to war on your behalf, that is in essence the gospel, Right, that, that we ultimately have a savior who went and fought a war that we couldn't fight for ourselves and secured us a profound victory over sin and death. In the joy that we should feel from the victory of such a conflict and war. That's what we want to talk about today. What that victory feels like and the depths of emotion that it should stir within us. And that's going to be the focus of our time together. So grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 7. Like I said earlier, we've already looked at the first 13 verses, the first six really speaking to this conflict between flesh and spirit, uh, verses 7 through 14 last week, giving us a great dose of the reality and the brutality of sin. Uh, and so now we get to a somewhat familiar passage 
uh, may be somewhat familiar as Paul kind of shifts into somewhat of a testimonial to what this struggle feels like in this life. And as he offers up his own testimonial point of view, we can all relate to it, right? It all, it all connects with us in some capacity and in some way. And, and so we're going to read this here, starting in verses 14 through 25. Here's what it says. It says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. But as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself doesn't dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For, not, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me, who rescues me, who gives me victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Okay, very powerful text here for us this morning, and I kind of want to walk through a, a little bit of it in, in a couple of chunks. We'll reintroduce the tension in the way that Paul presents it in verse 14. Right? Uh, this tension has been the theme through the whole chapter. Uh, when he gets to verse 14, he presents it to us in a unique way by saying that the law is spiritual, which is a pretty remarkable statement given everything that he's already said. Because as he's introduced this conflict between flesh and spirit over the last several verses, typically you see the law falling on the side of sin and death. Right? That, that it's, it's the instrument that was used to bring about our death in a lot of different ways. That's how we recognize how utterly sinful sin really is. And so to all of a sudden to kind of have that comparison in this antithesis between law and spirit for, for uh, essentially Paul to say, but the law is spiritual, was really remarkable, right? Essentially saying it's not just holy, righteous, and good like we talked about last week, but it is actually of the spirit. And so the tension that we feel in this conflict is not between us and the law, because the law is spiritual. The tension we feel is the fact that I am unspiritual. The law is holy, righteous, and good. It is spiritual. It is myself, my flesh, my nature that is unspiritual. And this is the tension that we feel. This is the war that has been raging within us and that he's been trying to explain. And, and so when you get to verses 15 through 20, uh, the, he really makes the same point over and over again, correct? I mean, and that's what makes it interesting and somewhat comedic to read when you read it really fast. It's just over and over again. Man, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, I can't do. And so he makes that point over and over again. And a couple of things that I want to say about this tension, right, that are, that are at least things that we can extract from verses 15 through 20 in this tension that he's presented. Uh, the first is the confusion that this tension creates. 
right? This, this conflict between spirit and flesh, that which is spiritual and unspiritual, creates the confusion. Right there at the very beginning, I believe, of verse 15, he says, I don't understand what I'm doing. Can I get an amen? Right, like we've all been, like, I don't understand what I do, is what Paul says. And I think we've all been in that moment, haven't we? Like we've all been in that moment where we're literally in the middle of making a decision, doing something, and we're thinking to ourselves, this isn't good, this is a bad idea, and yet we do it, right? We've been in arguments. We've been in situations where it's like you can feel and hear the words leaving your mouth, and you're like, no, I don't wanna say that, I don't wanna say that, and it's too late. You're like, why did I say that? How many times? Do we feel that moment, right, where we confuse, why do I do what I don't want to do, right? This tension creates confusion, and, and Paul is kind of unpacking that. Where does that come from? Where does that, that confusion or originate, really? Why are we struggling to that capacity? It creates this level of confusion that's really, really difficult for us to navigate and maintain. And so part of that is recognizing the way that this war operates between flesh and spirit, right, in this, this tension that we often struggle with on so many different levels. And that part of what he's wanting us to see when we have that confusion is that we need to have the right attitude. If you look back at one particular part of this verse, he offers up that when I see that I'm doing what I don't want to do, I still know that the law is good. Okay, so that's a really important statement, right? Part of what he's saying is he's unpacking this is, here's this tension, I'm confused, I don't know why there's this conflict within me, but I can still point to the fact that the law is good, right? I know this isn't what I should do, but, but I know that these are the things I should do, and the fact that he has that awareness, right, the fact that he's cognizant of that, of that stuff shows us that the law, or at least the spirit, is at work, right? He, he understands and can point to the fact that the law is actually still good. And so part of what we need to see here that I think is very important in understanding this particular passage is what this says about Paul's attitude, his posture, his disposition, right? What we see in this struggle, in this tension, is a heart that still longs to do good. Yes, it fails. Yes, it makes mistakes, right? All, all these things are very obvious, but he can still point to the fact that I know the law is good. I know that the law is spiritual. What we see here is an attitude that is willing, a heart that is willing, and this is very different than a heart that is defiant or dismissive. Right? Like, like that's a key point for us when we, when we engage in this battle between flesh and spirit. When our hearts are still willing, when our hearts are still after that which is good, that's one thing. But when we become defiant or indifferent towards sin, that's the really scary place to be, right? That's the really dangerous place to be is to go comfortable in our sin, indifferent to our sin, or actually defiant with our sin, right? Paul's attitude and his heart is in the right place, which leads us to kind of the opening question for this discussion today. How's your heart? Like th this passage, really this chapter, forces self-reflection. It forces self-evaluation. It forces us to look within our hearts because we all know, man, we can fool each other. We talk about that all the time. There's, there's no doubt we can fool each other. We can, we can put on a certain face. We can put on a certain presentation. We can have certain answers. But God knows our hearts, and so do we. And so part of what I want us to do this morning is evaluate our hearts. It, are our hearts in the right posture, in the right position, 
Or when we think about sin, when we think about this struggle, have we grown to a certain place of indifference? Dare I even say defiance, apathy, rebellion against that which we know is good? Or are we at least emulating what we see Paul demonstrate here, which is this desire to say, man, I know that I'm going to fail, I know that I'm going to struggle, but I can still point to the fact that, that God's way, his plan, his purpose is good, even if I fall short. So how's your heart? Right, we got we to ask ourselves that question. we got to wrestle with that to a certain extent. The other thing that I want us to look at today is that as we address this tension is to see the sort of expectations right, that this chapter really introduces. Okay, So you, you see the back and forth in verses 15 through 20 in this struggle, but I still long for it. You can see Paul's attitude. But here's the basic summary. If you look back again uh, in verses 21 through 23, he basically says, I find these two laws at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Right? So there are two laws at work. This is the conclusion. And so this sets certain expectations for us in dealing with this tension. Okay? And I think this is part of what chapter 7 really helps us understand, is having the appropriate expectations when we engage in this war, this conflict between flesh and spirit. And, and the first is just understanding it is going to be a conflict that exists for our entire lives. As long as we in, embody the flesh, this is the war that we are going to have to fight. Like it doesn't go away. This is part of our reality, even as believers. This is a fight that will take our entire existence. And so the follow-up question to that is, are you ready? Are you prepared? Do you have that expectation appropriately fixtured in your heart? Like, we're going to continue to struggle with the flesh as we seek to live by the Spirit, as long as we live. And so if we don't prepare ourselves, if we don't do the hard work to say, okay, I've got to get ready. I've got to equip myself. I've got to prepare myself. I've got to be in the Word. I've got to be in prayer. I've got to do the right things to navigate this conflict. If we don't take those steps, we will be absolutely overwhelmed by sin. So are you ready? Do you understand that it is a lifelong battle, but we can still strive to live by the Spirit. We have to have those right expectations, right? That it's going to be something that takes us our entire life. Here's the other part of the expectation that I think chapter 7 helps establish. You need to expect defeat. Like, we're, we're going to lose some of these battles along the way, right? It, it's not easy. Like, when you come to faith in Jesus and you decide to follow him and you, you decide to, to make him Lord and Savior of your life, like, you're still going to encounter this struggle, this tension, and you're going to have moments where you fail, right? And, and so part of that that Paul is trying to get us to see is to have those expectations of defeat. But the real question then is, what do you do with those moments of defeat, right? He's already really kind of hit on the attitude. You, you can't be indifferent. You can't be defiant. But you also can't let that defeat define you. Right? Indifference is going to say, well, I lost, what's the big deal? Sin is just a reality. I'm in the flesh. What can I do about it? You can't become indifferent and uncaring about the struggle. You have to continually strive to live by the Spirit. Right? And so you can't be indifferent, but you also can't let it define you and let you become so deflated and so defeated that you, it just becomes your identity. Right? That it just becomes the brokenness, that it just becomes 
all these different things that set deep within you that you can't escape from. Like that's where depression sets in. That's where anxiety, loneliness, that's where it really becomes debilitating is when you just give into it and it overwhelms and consumes you. So we have to expect defeat, but understand that we can still find resolve to fight against this fleshly nature and seek to live by the Spirit. Defeat should never define you, it should strengthen you. Right? You can grow from it. You can learn from it when we, when we struggle and we battle with sin in our life. Like we have to be able to expect those moments where we're going to fail and those things are ultimately going to come our certain way. Now, how do we do this? Okay, here's, here's the way uh, that I wanted to make sure we, we saw this was part of what happens when you read chapter 7 or when you start thinking about the inevitability of falling short and, and still struggling with sin is trying to make sense of how then the gospel works. Because in chapter 6... Right, you kind of have this language that's like, you, you've been set free, right? You can die to sin. You're now an instrument of righteousness. You're no longer a slave to sin. You get to be set free from all these things. And there's a real de- uh, definitive declaration of that. So then you kind of ask yourself, well, if that's true, why am I still struggling with it? Right? What did, what did Jesus' death and victory actually achieve if I'm not fully experiencing it in this life? And so part of what we have to do is read chapter 7 in context, and we have to understand the fullness of the gospel. And we've talked about this before that Jesus' death and resurrection, as it's explained in the first few chapters and really emphasized in chapter six, does absolutely secure you a victory, right? It, it, is, it is solidified, it is sure, it is certain, right? But we have not experienced the fullness of that redemption. We have not fully been united with Jesus in his resurrection until we are separated from the body. Right? So we're kind of living in that, waiting for the fullness of redemption. And so as we wait, we need to anticipate this conflict and try to live by the Spirit. So, so chapter 8 speaks to living life by the Spirit. Right? That's where it gets really, really good, and we're going to get to that as we, we move into the holiday season. Right? And so here's the problem, is that a lot of times in life, what we want to do is have chapter 6 and 8 with no 7. Like what we want to do is find Jesus hear that he's given us the spirit and so life should be easy, right? Or we make the other mistake is we just focus on chapter seven and we forget about chapter six and eight. And all we think about is our sin and our defeat and our brokenness and we forget what Jesus has actually accomplished for us. You have to have all of it, right? You have to see how all of it works together. Here's the way that I, I process it in my mind. Maybe this image helps you, it helped me. Think about being imprisoned, like literally in shackles and chains, prison cell, all those different things. I always picture like an ancient prison. Uh, but imagine being imprisoned, okay? What, what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplishes for us in this life is he essentially breaks us out of those chains and opens the prison door. Like you've been set free. Those chains, those shackles are gone. But you still have to work your way out of the prison, <laughs> Right, like you, you still have to navigate out of that prison to experience the fullness of that freedom. And that's what this life is ultimately about. Right, and that's, that's a difficult journey. That's a difficult task. There are gonna be moments of concern. There are gonna be moments of mistakes. There are gonna be moments of defeat. So much so that you might even question, how in the world am I gonna make it out of here? And that's where God says, don't worry, I'm gonna send you my spirit. I'm gonna actually send someone that's gonna help you navigate out of this prison and into the fullness of freedom that actually has been achieved for you, and that's going to come by my spirit, and you're living by my spirit. 
And so you get to have that assurance. That's, that's how, in my mind, verses chapter six, seven, and eight work together. Right? Jesus has set us free. In this life, though, we are navigating through the prison cell or the prison guards grounds of the flesh and being led by the Spirit of God until the fullness of that redemption is achieved for us. So we have to have the right expectations, right? That it is going to be a battle for the course of our lives. It is something that we have to, to navigate. We're going to experience defeat along the way, but we keep striving to live by the Spirit. Now, when we do this and we begin to to go through all those different things and we encounter these different struggles, what's really interesting to me is the conclusion that, that Paul arrives at when he has these expectations and he begins to, to live this out practically on a day-to-day basis. Right? What he does is he unpacks this for us is it leads him to a place where he says, what a wretched man I am. And that was such a powerful conclusion as I read that because it seems so countercultural to the world that we live in today. It, when I start thinking about how we tend to, as a society or as a culture, respond to sin and brokenness in our lives, very rarely do we arrive at a conclusion where it's our fault. Right? Like, we are very quick in society to point fingers at anything and everyone but ourselves. Right? And, and we'll do that in a number of different ways. That, that, that my reasoning for my failings or my sin or my responses or whatever it was, like I will find a number of excuses and justifications for that act, for that decision, for that sin, right? And I'll be able to blame, you know, hurt that I grew up with or what this person said to me or these sets of circumstances. Like we will find all these different reasons and excuses that justify our actions. Very rarely do we own up to our own responsibilities of our own sinfulness, and so for Paul to say, man, what a wretched man I am. This battle, this conflict, these defeats just shows me how wretched I really am. And that's so refreshing compared to the context that I feel like we often live in. Especially when we start thinking about how that not just allows us to maybe excuse our responses and our actions towards others, but even how it shapes our faith. I feel like we live in a culture and a context that is so much more inclined and so much more likely to say, what a wretched God he must be rather than us saying, what a wretched man am I, right? We'll figure out ways to blame God. We'll figure out ways to do all these things. Paul takes ownership of this. Paul's the one that says, yeah, this is all me. This is my sinfulness. This is my doing. Who will save me from this body that is prone to sin and death? And he cries out for rescue. And his uh, accurate an appropriate self-assessment, he sees his own wretchedness and realizes, I don't need a law, I need a savior. I need someone who can rescue me. Who will do this? And the answer is Jesus. He's the one that comes and delivers you. Now this, this deliverance is really remarkable when we really stop and consider this gospel. Okay, think about how this takes place. How can he have this certainty that Jesus has actually brought forward this victory, right? Well, what we know is that the only thing that separates us and allows us to escape the body of flesh is death. Every single one of us know it. That's the only way out is through death. Now that, that's terrifying and used to be terrifying because what? That was the ultimate weapon that sin wielded against us. Right, the wages of sin 
is death. That was supposed to be death's or sin's final word, right? Sin's ultimate blow against humanity is, is death, right? That was the one thing that sin had ultimately over every human heart and every human soul. And so what Jesus does by us uniting ourselves with his death, what his death and his resurrection achieves for us is it takes sin's ultimate weapon and it says you no longer have to fear it because it's been defeated. Right, it's actually been overcome. It, there is victory over death. The tomb has been emptied of its power. And so when we understand this gospel, that it is so much more than just do's and don'ts and rules and commandments, but an actual freedom from death, what that does is give us a fuller understanding of the victory that we have in Christ. And we have in that victory, because of his death, something incredibly valuable and precious that should help us navigate our life through this flesh that I don't want us to lose sight of this morning. What that gives you is assurance. Right? Like it gives you assurance. You find yourself sitting there with the prison doors open and you see that you've still got to escape the prison. Right? You've still got to navigate life. And there are going to be moments where you're like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can really make this. How do I know that I can really trust Christ? How can I really trust God to lead me through this? The way that you have assurance that it will absolutely work out and that he is victorious is through the death and resurrection of Christ. What Christianity offers, unlike any other set of beliefs, is assurance of victory and freedom. If you think about it, every other set of beliefs that you could consider in this world today, when that question is presented, how do I know? How do I know that salvation is possible? How do I know that I can get to paradise or heaven, whatever it is? Every other set of beliefs is giving you a giant maybe. That's what they offer, right? Think about it. You look, we could lump Hinduism and Buddhism in together for just a brief moment, right? When you think about the idea of uh, reaching nirvana or just the cessation of existence and the cessation of suffering, enlightenment, and all these different things, and the cycle of reincarnation to work yourself up there, when you live through life and you say, am I doing well enough to achieve it? The answer is maybe. Depends on how you come back next. Maybe. You look at Islam. I mean, Islam gives you the five pillars, tells you everything you need to do to be a good Muslim, right? All the different steps that you should take. And when you begin to ask that question, do I know that I'll be able to enter paradise? You know what most Muslims will tell you? Something along the lines of only Allah knows, right? Because what Muslims believe is at the end of your life, when you stand before Allah, there's gonna be a scale that's gonna weigh good and bad, and only Allah knows which way that scale will tip. So maybe. Secularism? Right, no, no religion or, or a set of beliefs that tells you all you really need to focus on is this life and finding meaning and purpose in this life. Then you begin to ask your question, is there a heaven? Is there an afterlife? You know what the answer is? Maybe. How do I get there? I don't know. Probably all roads get us there, maybe. None of the other sets of beliefs give you assurance. Only Christianity says you can be sure that victory has been given to you through Christ. It's the only one that gives you that sort of confidence. Do we realize how precious and sacred that really is? There, there is one interaction that I had uh, with a pastor in Sierra Leone that, that gave a great story that I think really kind of captures why that's so valuable and, and why we would be so crazy not to receive it. 
when, when I was a missions pastor, we'd go to Sierra Leone uh, all the time. Pastor Emmanuel is the one I'm referencing here. I've, I've told you about him before. I've shared some of his testimony. It's remarkable. But when, when we were in Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone is one of the poorest countries um, in, in, in the world. And uh, there's a lot of different outreach ministry that exists in that country. Pastor Emmanuel was focused on the Fulani and would go up to the northern regions of the country and work in different villages. And to be Fulani was to be Muslim, right? So he worked extensively with Muslims, and he would work um, tirelessly to come up with ways to convey these complex truths of Christianity to speak to, to Muslims and get them to understand the differences. And he had all these little parables that he shared with me that I thought were just really simple and remarkable. And he talked about the value of assurance. And, and so since Sierra Leone is such a poor country, uh, the idea of a Sierra Leonean being able to actually leave their country, like get on an airplane and travel anywhere, uh, was a very uh, luxurious idea. Very few people could do that. And so if you ever talk to them about the value of that, I mean, that would, that would really speak to them, that would get them excited. And so he, he would tell this parable-type story to them, and he'd say, imagine somebody was going to come up to you and offer you a passport and a plane ticket out of this country. Every Sierra Leone gets interested. Oh, yeah, that'd be amazing. I love that opportunity. He says, well, let's say one man says, I've got this passport and I've got this uh, airline ticket for you, but I'm going to hold it for you. And when your flight leaves in two days, I'll meet you at the airport and maybe I'll give it to you then. Right? And that, that person, the whole question is, well, maybe he'll be there, maybe he won't, maybe I'll get it, maybe I won't. And then he says, there's a second man who says, hey, I've got this passport and airline ticket for you and it's going to allow you to leave the country. I'm going to give it to you right now. You can have it. You can hold it. And he'd ask these Sierra Leoneans, he'd say, which one would you want to deal with? Every single time the people would say, oh, I want the man that's going to give me the airline ticket and the passport. I, I want to be able to hold on to it. And Pastor Emmanuel would say, that's what Jesus does. That's what he does. He gives you this beautiful gift of salvation. He gives you this beautiful promise. And he says, it can be yours. You can hold it. It is precious. It is dear. And you can have that assurance that it is yours. No one can take it from you. And that's the sort of assurance that I want us to hear Today, the sort of joy that comes in this victory of knowing what Jesus has done for us that helps us navigate even the defeats that we experience in this life between flesh as we seek to live by the Spirit. And understanding that that victory gives us a promise of being with Jesus once again, that there will be a day where we will be in his arms and all will be made new and all of the struggle is no more. That's the sort of victory that I want us to lean into this morning, church. And so here's, here's how I want us to do that, okay? Here's how I'm gonna close. I want us to, to tap into the depths of that joy of the victory that we have in Christ, recognizing that we are not awaiting redemption from the body, but a redemption of the body, right? Of this incredible promise and all that it has achieved for us. And I want us to truly understand the victory that comes from understanding that someone has gone and fought on your behalf into the treacherous reality of hostility and suffering and pain, unlike anything we could have ever imagined, so that you and I can become victorious from this body of sin and death. And the deep sort of joy that that should create within our hearts. And so here's what I do. I brought a video today that gives us a picture of that. And if you've been a part of this church for as long as I've been here, six years, you know that I've actually shown a video like this before. It was my first advent when I was here. Um, and so I'm drawing upon this image again just because I think it's so appropriate to understanding the sort of victory that we've had and our response of joy that should be um, offered as a result of it. 
But here's what I wanna say. Uh, if you're like me, whenever I see these videos, I get emotional, okay? Just confession, I really do. Um, and, and so here's what I wanna say about this as we prepare to watch it, is that sometimes I feel like we in American Christianity don't really know what to do with emotion, right? Like sometimes uh, people get really standoffish to being emotional in church, right? And, and, and that's because sometimes emotions can be manipulated and people can start following Jesus or make stated beliefs and not really understand what they're believing. They're just following their emotions. So they're really high on Jesus one day and then they're really low on Jesus the next day. And so we're like, oh, I'm not gonna give in to emotion, right? And we just like cast it aside. Well, there's some wisdom in that, but while we shouldn't neglect, you know, live in emotion and be manipulated by it, we shouldn't neglect it either because emotions are gifts from the Lord. Like he created you to be emotional. Um, and, and there are times where it's only when we tap into the emotions of our heart and our soul that we really find the power of joy, of love, of grace, and so I want us to, to really tap into that part of our hearts and our souls this morning to understand what is it going to be like when that joy is complete, that victory is complete, and we get to be with the one who fought on our behalf to secure us this victory. Let's take a look and see what that looks like in an everyday occurrence here. Oh, <laughs> 
That's the joy of victory, church. And that's the joy that I want us to experience in our own hearts this morning. And what I love about so many of those clips is it shows us what it's like for a child to run into the loving arms of a parent. The gospel is understanding that the victory that we have comes from a loving father who waits to receive his children again. And he has given us the assurance that that victory is ours. And so let that deep feeling of joy well up within you today and give you the strength to manage tomorrow until that day finally arrives where we get to fall into his arms and be with him forever. This is the joy of victory that is worth singing about and celebrating. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And in whatever capacity, God, today we run into your arms and we thank you so deeply for the victory that we have in Jesus. You are our Savior, Father, forever. And we thank you for all that you've done for us, God, and may we leave here today with that spirit of joy and with that spirit of victory so that you can be glorified and honored in our lives, even in the battle as we seek to live by the Spirit. We thank you, Jesus. Our lives are yours. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen and amen.